reading for today is from Haggai chapter 1, verses 1 through 6. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua the son of Jehozadak the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. This is the word of God. You may be seated. The book of the prophet Haggai. It's one of the smaller prophetic books, but crucially important in the overall story of the Hebrew Bible. So for centuries, the Hebrew prophets had been accusing Israel of breaking their covenant with God through idolatry and injustice, and they warned that God would send the great empire of Babylon to take out Jerusalem, destroy the temple, and haul off the people into exile. And it all happened in the year 587 BC. But that wasn't the end of the story. The prophets also believed that there was still hope and that God would one day bring back a transformed remnant of his people Israel to live in a new Jerusalem where God's presence would live in their midst. Now when we turn to Haggai, the year is 520 BC, nearly 70 years after the exile. And the Babylonian Empire has recently collapsed and the world is now ruled by the Persians. Now they allowed the return of any exiled Israelites who wanted to go back to Jerusalem, which still lay in ruins. And so under the leadership of a high priest named Joshua and Zerubbabel, an heir from the line of David, and a group of exiles, they all returned and began to rebuild the city and their lives. Remember the story from the book of Ezra chapters 1 to 6. So our hopes are high and the future seems very bright, but it's not actually, at least from Haggai's point of view. The book consists of four sections that summarize Haggai's message given to the people of Jerusalem over the course of four months. He opens by accusing the people of misplaced priorities. And so yes, they have come back to Jerusalem, but they're spending all of their time and resources rebuilding their own fancy houses, while the temple still lay in ruins from its destruction from 70 years ago. So Haggai asks, are your own houses really more important than your allegiance to God? This neglect, Haggai says, is tantamount to the covenant rebellion of their ancestors, which is why the land is still unproductive, why they've been struck with famine and drought. And here Haggai's quoting from the list of covenant curses in the book of Deuteronomy. And so Haggai's challenging words, they're followed by a story of the people's response. Remember also the story in Ezra chapter 5. We're told that Zerubbabel, Joshua, the remnant of the people were provoked by Haggai's message and they were motivated. They started rebuilding the temple. So in the next section, Haggai follows up one month later and he addresses some problems of shattered expectations among the people. 
So the temple that they're rebuilding is really pretty unimpressive. It's nothing compared to the glory of the temple Solomon built here some 500 years earlier. And so morale was really low for finishing the project. And so Haggai reminds the people of the great prophetic promises of the future kingdom of God and about this temple. He draws from the earlier prophets, especially Isaiah and Micah, about the new Jerusalem and that it would be the place from which God would redeem the whole world and where all nations would come and participate in God's kingdom, resulting in an era of peace. And so the temple, it plays a key role in God's plans for the future. And Haggai calls on the people to work in hope despite the disappointing circumstances. In the third section, Haggai follows up two months later with a call to covenant faithfulness, and he engages some priests in a conversation about ritual purity. Remember all the key ideas from the book of Leviticus. So he says, if someone goes and touches a dead body and becomes ritually impure or marked by death, and then they go and touch some food, is that food impure too? And the priests, knowing the book of Leviticus, say, yes, it's impure. And then Haggai turns this into a parable. He says, this is how it is with the people of Israel and what they're putting their hands to in rebuilding the temple. If the current generation doesn't humble themselves, if they don't turn from injustice and apathy, then Haggai says whatever they build with their hands, including this new temple, will be impure too. Haggai's challenge is that it's only by true repentance and covenant faithfulness that their building efforts will result in God bringing his kingdom and blessing. And so in a sense, Israel's future lay in their hands. God's waiting for his people to be faithful. And so the choice that Haggai's laying before the exiled generation, it's very similar to the challenge Moses gave the wilderness generation before entering the land. Their obedience will lead to blessing and success while faithlessness will lead to ruin. The book concludes with Haggai's summary of the future hope of God's kingdom. He's going to make the new Jerusalem the center of his glorious international kingdom. And from there, he will confront and defeat evil among the nations. He reminds people of the defeat of Pharaoh's army in the Exodus story. God will fulfill here his promise to David and establish the king from his line. And in Haggai's day, that was represented by Zerubbabel. And so the book ends with the choice of a bright future just hanging there. So the question is, will Haggai's generation be faithful to God? Will they experience the fulfillment of all these promises? And Zerubbabel, will he be faithful? Will he turn out to be the messianic king? And you have to just keep reading into the final two books of the prophets, Zechariah and Malachi, to find out. But you can see how this little book contains a great challenge to every generation of God's people, that our choices really matter, and that the faithfulness and obedience of God's people is part of how God has chosen to work out his purposes in the world. And so this surprising truth should motivate humility and action in God's people as they look forward to God's coming kingdom. And that is the message of the book of Haggai. All right, good morning, Redemption. How are y'all? I'm uh, very impressed with uh, Nick and his ability to handle all of those Old Testament names during the reading. That was, that was really good. Uh, also, just um, uh, th that all of life interview, I think, was really, really helpful and, and could be applied in so many different contexts. So I appreciate Chad and Andy doing that. That's why I wanted to have them back. They did it once before kind of the rest of the story. Uh, there is one announcement that I wanted to make this morning. I want to remind you that we're having a Christmas Eve choir, uh, and our Christmas Eve services are at 3.30 and 5. They will be primarily driven by 
uh, music and the choir, and I want to remind you that if you'd like to uh, be a part, in fact, you should want to be a part of the Christmas Eve choir. It's a lot of fun. All you got to do is contact Reagan Capace, who is our assistant worship director. She's sitting right down here, but you, you can come and talk to her. You can also email her. Uh, it's a lot of fun. Uh, Jackie and I and Shelby and Darby and Joey do it every year, and, and uh, it is really a lot of fun. You'll meet a lot of new people. So, all right, let's get into Haggai. A very short prophet, but again, just filled with all kinds of good stuff. The year is 520, as you heard, and Haggai explicitly, explicitly dates his prophecies to the day, and so we know that he preached four times, beginning on August 29th and ending on December 18th, 520 BC, specific dates, which is helpful. And the messages that he gives uh, encourage the people of Judah to finish the temple and then to be sure to humbly place their hope in God, which is what their ancestors uh, had not been doing. And so uh, a little bit just to help fill in the gaps from the video, uh, what's going on? Well, again, uh, the Jews were taken to Babylon uh, in the exile, starting in 605, ending in 587, 586. So they'd been there for decades in Babylon. In 539 BC, so about 19 years before Haggai preaches, in 539, the Medo-Persian Empire led by Cyrus the Great, not Darius, Darius came later, but led by Cyrus the Great, they figured out how to finally uh, sack Babylon. It it's an amazing story. Babylon was surrounded by uh, supposedly the greatest city wall ever built. It was the highest thing in the world at the time, but it was also extraordinarily thick, very wide. Uh, the historians say that that on the top of the wall around the city of Babylon, you could have uh, four abreast chariot races around the top of the wall. It was absolutely amazing, impenetrable. Y all the siege machines that had tried before couldn't make a dent in this wall. And, and so the Persian engineers apparently figured out how to reroute the Euphrates River, which ran through uh, Babylon. They just figured out how to reroute that, and and where the river would run through uh, the wall, now suddenly they had an opening. And they essentially were able to just walk into the city and it was over. The war was over. And so that's how the Persian Empire came in uh, to being in 539. And the Persian king, Cyrus the Great, was quite different than most other kings of powerful nations. He was what you might call a local traditionalist. A local traditionalist. He strongly believed in the importance of local communities, their traditions, and their businesses. So here you go. Those of you that think that the big local movement is new, it might be new to you, but there is nothing new under the sun. I just want you to know that every idea that we have has already been tried and recycled and all that. I'm not saying the local movement isn't good. I'm just saying it's not necessarily new. Anyway, when he conquered Babylon... He saw all the captured people and was of the mind that the Jews uh, could go back to their homeland and rebuild their lives there. And so many of them did, but many of them decided to stay in Babylon. They'd been there for decades. Some of them uh, had, had really no um, connection to uh, Jerusalem, so they decided to stay there. And then there were also Jews who decided at that time that they would instead move east to Susa, the capital of Persia, which is in present-day Iran, and live there. And that's where we get the book of Esther in the mid-480s to the mid-460s, if you're interested in, in that history. So in 538, 
the next year because uh, Babylon was toppled by the Persians on Halloween. It wasn't Halloween at the time, but it was October 31st, 539. By, by early 538, uh, the Jews had started to go back to um, Jerusalem, and they found, obviously, a mess, and they had a lot to rebuild. And so they started on their own houses and their businesses and the city's needs, and they started on the temple, and they worked on the temple for about three years. Rebuilding the temple was going to be a big job. But eventually, just three years in, the temple work stopped in favor of specifically the people's own stuff. They were more interested in what they were doing and rebuilding their own lives and living comfortably than, than taking care of the temple. And you can see uh, all of this is recorded in Ezra chapter 4. So God's house, the temple, had been left in shambles and unattended for 16 years by the time Haggai was called to say something about this. Now, God might not care for that. This was his place of honor. This was the place where he, uh, at that time, would reside, supposedly. And, and, and so he felt slighted by the people. They were building their houses and taking care of their houses, uh, but not his. Uh, Brian Ocker, the Old Testament scholar, writes this. An unbuilt or decaying temple signifies a decaying relationship with and indifference toward the Lord, which also brings a sense of defilement to the people. And I have found that as much as we want to push back against um, the idea that, that going to church makes you a good person or makes you a moral person or makes you even a Christian, and I understand the theology of pushing back against that, we often use that as an excuse to just simply not go to church, and that's when defilement starts to come, when you separate yourself from the community of God and the presence of God in, in a very purposeful way. I would also argue, and I know this may sound a little bit silly to some of you, but I would also argue that this is also why the annual work day that we do on this property every October is really important. God has, has granted us tremendous favor by allowing us to have this incredible property, and it's part of our relationship with him that we care for it and steward it well. And I'll tell you something, if you don't know the backstory of how we ended up with this property, please, I'm happy. It, uh, email me, call me up, whatever, let's have coffee together. I love to tell that story anytime I get a chance because it's an amazing God story of how we ended up with this property. But that's why we should also take care of it and steward it well. But at the same time, I think we can also see God's patience here. He waited 16 years. He's, he's always willing to give us a chance to figure this out on our own. We're just usually not that good about figuring this stuff out on our own. Now, this prophecy of Haggai's is different than most of the other prophecies that are in the Bible and that we've looked at so far. Uh, first of all, it's written not in poetry but in prose, so it's a little bit easier to read for a lot of people. And there are no oracles of judgment, really, in fact, it's, it's, th there are four parts to it, but it's really what we might call a goad oracle or an exhortation. It, it, God is simply saying through Haggai, yo, get to work. You, you need to finish this job on the temple. A and here's something else that I think is unusual about this prophet. The people listen. They listen. How often does that happen? They got back to work on the temple and finished it five years later. So let's dive in. I want to reread uh, what Nick read for us, uh, one through six, because that just sets 
the foundation for everything else that we're going to talk about. In the second year of Darius, the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet, to Zerubbabel, the son of Sheetael, and the governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And I love this line. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. So here you get, you know, you get the context, you get the history, you get the story. So again, what's going on? Zerubbabel is the governor of Judah. Now, we need to remember, he's not the king. They used to have kings. Now he's just the governor because uh, even though uh, Cyrus let them all go back and now Darius is the king, he had become the king a year earlier, um, they were still a vassal state of the Persians. And so uh, there wasn't a king, there was a governor, and he was in charge of taking care of the people, governing the people, but he also had to collect all the taxes, all the tribute money to send back to Susa, to uh, Persia. And so there's Zerubbabel, and then there's Joshua, the high priest. Both were responsible for the temple being rebuilt, the governor and the high priest in tandem. And it's true that they were dealing with a ton of pressure in order to get this temple rebuilt. I mean, they had obstinate and selfish people to deal with, and they had this high tax problem that they were dealing with. But they also needed to lead. And any of you who have led in the past, you know that leading is really easy when people follow. Leading is really easy when people just listen to you, when, when they're just hanging on your every word. Leading is easy when there's no sacrifice and no challenges, no friction or tension. But true leadership also means leading when it's hard. So it was time for the two of them to step up. Both would be ultimately held responsible for the failure of getting the temple rebuilt. Both were being held, for the, held responsible for the sad state of affairs there. There's the temple sitting, not, not even 20% of the way done, in ruins, and the, the, the nation is in, its livelihood is in shambles. They're struggling. And verse 4 is key. First, you got to understand, verse 4 is known, what's known as a rhetorical question. Okay, if you understand, you know, a rhetorical question is really a statement in question form. It's not an attempt to gather information. It, it's a way to make you think. But also, this rhetorical question is laced, it is filled with satire. When God says, you're living in paneled houses, if you understand the context, a paneled house in their context, maybe Andy could tell you more about a paneled house, but in their context, a paneled house meant that they, weren't, they didn't just build some, some uh, little repeater houses and it was just enough to be able to get by. They were nice houses. These were luxurious houses. It's God's way of saying, you guys are living in Arcadia and I'm living in a, in a trailer park in Yuma. No offense to any of you up from Yuma today, okay? He says, you got to get going on this thing. And I will just tell you, it's, I love rhetoric. I'm a word nerd. I love all this stuff. It's sad to me 
So few anymore seem to understand this kind of sharp and insightful communication. And the Bible's filled with it. I recently mentioned that satire is dead because people uh, are either deeply offended by satire or they don't understand it. And of course, the irony is that you, they're usually the same person. They're offended because they don't understand it. That it's supposed to be used to make you think, but sometimes you've got to get somebody's attention in order to, to, to make them think about something. So God would use satire. Jesus used satire all the time in the New Testament. Every time you see the professional religious people getting angry, chances are Jesus was using some satire. He was using it to make them think deeply uh, about what was going on. And so God is saying, it's time, why is it time for you to take care of yourself, but it never seems to be time for you to take care of me? You need to understand, I'm the one that brought the remnant out of exile in the first place. It's because of me that you're back here, that you have your place again. Okay, here you go. Who in here has either said out loud, or you have thought privately, just as soon as I'm all squared away, then I'll start serving God. Just as soon as my life slows down, then I will start thinking of others. Just as soon as I feel ready, then I'll start reading the Bible or attending a Bible study. And have you noticed? That time never comes, right? Just as soon, but it never comes. It never comes. God doesn't buy it, and we shouldn't be trying to sell it. So Haggai continues, verses 7 through 11. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts? Because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain and on the new wine, the oil, and on, the ground, uh, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and on all their labors. So here's what's going on here. You hear those things that God, through Haggai, is referencing. The rain, the harvest, the wine, the oil, and the wages. Those are, those are symbolic of bigger things. Uh, for God's people, uh, for centuries, and in this particular time, God's people thinks of these things. The wine, the oil, the wages, the harvest. All of those things that are mentioned here, the people think of those things as God's blessing on them and they haven't had very much blessing lately. And they're wondering where it is. There's no blessing, no wages, no harvest, no wine. It seems that way anyway. So here you go. They are living under a curse. They're living under a curse. Nothing is working. And God tells them why. He says, here's why it's hard. Now, you th again, you'd think they'd figure it out by now. But they haven't, and they won't. And in many ways, they're just like you and I, a little bit crazy. They keep doing the same thing, but expecting the, uh, different results and wondering why the results don't change. The scholars, listen to this now, the scholars even write that one of the signs that you are living under a curse 
is that you cannot, for the life of you, figure out that you are living under a curse. And you just keep doing the same thing over and over again. You're confused and you don't know why. You're angry and you have no way of figuring it out. I, I, can't, I can't tell you how many times as a pastor, people have called me up and met with me. Because I'm a pastor, as a pastor, they come to me and they say, uh, my life's kind of a mess. Can you help me with it? And, and I'll say, well, let's look at what Scripture says. And here's what they'll say. This doesn't happen every time, but it happens more often than you think. I'll say, let's look at what Scripture says. And they say, I already know what Scripture says. I'm looking for something different. And I say, well, have you tried what Scripture says? He said, no, I told you I'm looking for something else. And then my line is usually, well, that's all I got, so let's enjoy our coffee and, you know. Guess what? You're living under a curse. You're living under a curse. And, and God is allowing it, but you started it. It's, un it's, it's really of your own doing. Those of you who like Parks and Rec, maybe this gives new insight to the meaning of treat yourself. It could lead you to living under a curse. David Pennant writes this, this failing to see God's hand in our troubles is common among believers today. Amen. We simply do not realize the effects of the sin that we tolerate in our lives. This is not to say that all disaster is because of sin, but rather that sin does have consequences. And the video mentions Deuteronomy a couple of times and what God says in Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy 11, he says it like this. See, I am setting before you today a blessing and a curse. The blessing, if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you today, and the curse, if you do not obey the commandments of the Lord your God, but turn aside from the way that I am commanding you today, to go after other gods. So just a simple graph of this. God says, if you obey, there's a blessing. If you disobey, there's a curse. But here's what we think we deserve. This is, every one of us thinks that we can manipulate this formula so that it looks like this. I'm going to disobey, but I'm still going to get the blessing. We really believe we're the exception. Every one of us thinks we're the exception. And then I know, but come on, Pastor Frank, is obedience really that important? Here you go. Here's the trump card. What about grace? What about grace? Well, you heard the grace-filled guys from the Bible Project, Tim Mackey. Those guys are more grace-filled than you and I will ever understand in our entire lives. But they also said obedience of God's people is how he chooses to work his purposes in the world that he's created. Obedience is a part of this. So yeah, we're forgiven when we don't obey, but there is also no blessing when we don't obey. Why do we expect disobedience and blessing? Yes, there's grace, but there's no blessing. There's no value added. We truly want something for nothing, always have. But that doesn't even work in the context of unmerited favor. Okay, so here you go. Let's say you're an employer. Someone comes and begs you for a job. They are desperate. You are their last possible job that they could possibly get. And, and, and you analyze, you look at their resume, their application. You look at their Facebook page, not that impressed. You look at all the stuff, and, and, and 
honestly, there's really nothing that they bring to the table that you even need. And you're, you're really not hiring. You don't really have any room, but you go ahead and hire them anyway. And the only thing they bring to the table is their need. You hire them anyway, and then what happens? They don't work. They come in, and if they come in, they come in late, they leave early. They're just like the employees in the office. They seem to spend all of their time standing in front of the vending machines talking. They never do anything. They never do any work. And as an employer, we get annoyed. I don't know any employer who wouldn't say, that's a problem. You see what I'm getting at here? We expect God to behave with us in a way that we would never expect ourselves to behave, logically, rationally, or otherwise. Why? Why? And that's the message of Haggai. Haggai is saying to God's people, why would you behave in a way that you would never put up with yourself? See, we want this without any work. Here you go. Work is talked about all through the Bible. Here's, here's another place. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 10 through 15, Paul writes this. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one of you care how he builds upon it, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it. Because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a ward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will, receive, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only through fire. See, we, we don't, those of us who are really, really this far on the gray side, we don't, we're, we're uncomfortable with passages like that. Because it reminds us that we're actually called something to it in the midst of that, in the midst of that grace. Paul's saying, Paul, Mr. Grace himself, obedience and work, obedience and work. This is a part of it. We've been given unmerited favor, yes, but that should logically and emotionally lead us to joyful and grateful obedience. And Haggai's message is no different than that. And the funny thing is, it's not even, here you go, there's some irony in there. You've got to really... You've got to think about this, but there's some deep irony in there. It's really not even that the people didn't necessarily have money. It's not that they hadn't necessarily been blessed. They had paneled houses, but they felt like they had no money because they spent what they had frivol frivolously, and God says, I'm not going to bless that. How many of you in this room right now are making way more money, way more money than you ever imagined when you were in your late teens and early 20s. You, you had that thought, if I could just get to here income-wise, oh, what a blessing that would be. It would be great. I'd have everything taken care of. And you're not here. You're up here, and yet you're, you're going, where is all the money? I feel like I don't have enough. I still feel like I'm living paycheck to paycheck, hand to mouth. Where did it all go? Here you go. You have to ask yourself this question. Isn't it possible that it isn't just bad luck, but that you're not honoring the way God is blessing you in a biblical way, honoring 
God's blessing for you in your income with biblical principles of how money and finance works, isn't it just possible that it isn't just about your miserable luck? How every time you turn around, something breaks? Isn't it possible that that's what the problem is? One other thing. Notice in verse 7, I emphasized this when I read it. God did not ask them to pray about this verse. You notice that? He didn't say go pray. He said consider your ways. And then he gives instruction. That ancient Hebrew word that we've translated as consider, it literally means be honest with yourself, you know better. Be honest with yourself, you know better. There's no need to pray here. Let me, let me, there's no need to pray here. God is very clear. Respond. That's what he's saying. We often talk about how our Achilles heel in our spiritual life is praying, right? But isn't it amazing how good we are at prayer when we can use it to avoid what God is calling us to do, clearly? We do that all the time. I really feel God is calling me to do this difficult thing. I think I need to pray about it for five, ten years. <laughs> Indefinitely. Until I have a clear sign from him. And then look at just verse 13 of chapter 1. Something else that God says, very important. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. I am with you with you. The curse is not a sign that God had rejected his people. In fact, it was a sign of his love. The curse was a sign of his love. When you love someone and they're being stupid, sorry to use the S word, but they're being stupid, don't you try to get their attention? And sometimes don't you do things that someone else, someone with no grasp of context, wisdom, or backstory might in their mind say you're doing that and it's unloving and it's even cruel. But you know what you're doing because the person's being stupid and you need to get their attention. You see, God is with his people. Even when he doesn't feel like it, he's with his people. And there's a, by the way, let me just say, words have meaning. Words are important. There is a difference between being with and for. I just want you to know that. There's a big difference between with and for. With is much more comprehensive and difficult than for. I hope we understand that. Being for is easy. Being for is when everything is good. I, I'm, I'm for you. Being for is, is when we don't have to sacrifice. Being for is when we don't get mocked. Frankly, being for is kind of the ethos of the Arizona sports fan. And we have suffered mightily, I understand that. But being with takes courage. Being with means that you are going to plant roots. Come what may. With means hanging in there when it's ugly. With means staying when you're mocked. With means you're willing to do something that other people might consider indefensible. With uh, means that there may not be any worldly ROI, return on investment, that you can see. With means sacrifice. I would rather people were with me than for me. Because with is eternal and for is temporal and subject to change. 
and subject to circumstances. But what, I'd really, what I really want, more than that even, is that God is with me. That God is with me. The key statement in the Joseph narrative in Genesis chapters 37 through 50, the key statement in that narrative is what? But the Lord was with Joseph. The Lord was with Joseph. So verse, uh, chapter 2, verses 6 through 9. For thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more, in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations, so that the treasures of all nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Now, in, this, in these four verses, God is speaking to Zerubbabel, the governor, and to Joshua, the high priest. And God repeats in verse 5, I am with you. This is good news. This is gospel news. And again, we see the new Jerusalem here. Not, not the new Jerusalem of 520, but the new Jerusalem that all of us have an inheritance in and, and have placed our hope in. God says that the latter will be more glorious than the former, that whatever you build is not going to hold a candle to what eventually I'm going to usher in through the new Jerusalem. Whatever we build on earth, even the temple of God, what is to come when Jesus returns is of, the great, of a greatness that you and I have never seen, never tasted, never touched, and that we can't even imagine. If you read Revelation, and especially chapters 21 and 22, if you read that, you get, you can, you can, and really study it, you can get an idea of what the New Jerusalem is going to be like, but it does not answer all of our questions, and we have a lot of questions about the New Jerusalem. And it's interesting to me because um, I, I've run into this before, and the author I'm going to mention in a second has also run into this before. Um, people will say, I, I don't know that heaven's necessarily for me. I, I don't know enough about it. I'd like more. I'd like to know. Some people, of course, have the idea that heaven is, is we're just going to be big fat babies with wings and we're going to play harps all day long, and that's what it's going to be. That's not the new Jerusalem. Read your Bibles. That's not it. That's a caricature promoted by other people. It's not what it's going to be like. New Jerusalem is going to be wonderful, but we don't have all the questions answered. Even still, people want more information. Randy Alcorn wrote a book called Heaven. It's about the new heavens and the new earth. I, I, I taught a class once. It's an 11-week class on the new heavens and new earth. And Randy Alcorn's book was one of the books that I read in research for this. Uh, another one, fantastic book, N.T. Wright's Surprised by Hope, was another key book for that. But I did 11 weeks on the new heavens and new earth. And, and I learned a lot there. And I remember one illustration from Alcorn's book that was really helpful to me. He said, let's say you're one of those skeptics. I don't know enough about the new Jerusalem. I don't, I, I don't, I don't think it's for me. I don't want to go there, okay? Let's say you fly a lot on commercial airlines. But it's always been coach. You walk through first class in order to get to your coach seat, so you have some idea. You've got a little bit of information, but then they close that, that, that curtain, and you really can't see what's going on in there during, during... I've flown first class, I will tell you, it's pretty terrific, okay? They close the curtain for a reason. They don't want the people in coach to rebel, 
okay? But you've never experienced it. You've never tasted first class. I was going to say the new heavens and the new earth, but that's going a little bit too far, okay? You've never tasted first class. So you're sitting in your coach seat now. You're getting ready to fly from here to New York, so four-and-a-half-hour flight. And, and here comes the flight attendant, and they walk over to you, and they say to you, look, we've had a mix-up with some of the seat assignments. It would really help us a lot if, we, if you would be willing to move into first class, okay? Would you be willing to do that, okay? Seriously? You're going to sit there and go, nah. I don't know enough about first class to feel comfortable moving up there for free. Why wouldn't you want to be in the New Jerusalem? That's the promise that God is giving us here. He says all the nations will be blessed, and there's going to be peace for all. And ironically, there is going to be no temple in the New Jerusalem because the New Jerusalem is, in fact, the temple. They won't build a temple in the New Jerusalem. It is the temple. I can't believe it. Already it's Christmas and Advent. I mean, we're lighting candles, and we've got the hipster Christmas trees up and everything. I mean, it's wonderful. But we need to remember, this is why he was born. I love Christmas, but I get troubled sometimes that we just want to leave Jesus in the manger. We like him as a baby. But we need to remember that he's the one that went to the cross and made all of this possible. And the temple is important, but ultimately, who or what is our temple today? Well, that question is answered in John chapter 2. Verses 18 through 22, Jesus had just cleansed the temple, pretty radical story. So the Jews came to him and said, what sign do you show us for doing these things? They were really mad at Jesus. And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And the Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you will raise it up in three days. But Jesus was speaking about the temple of his body. When, therefore, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scriptures and the word that Jesus had spoken. Jesus is our temple today. This is why Paul, in his New Testament letters, more than 160 times says, you are in Christ. You are in the temple of God. You're in the house of God, in Christ. It's interesting, though, we always want a building, though, don't we? We, we have to build a building, and we have to make it spectacular in order to, to make ourselves feel good about ourselves. Think about it. I, I was around, I remember in 1993 when the new Suns Arena was built. I used to go to the Suns games at the Coliseum, which I'm amazed is still standing. But I remember when the new Suns Arena was built. It, oh, so, it was so great. It's one of the most antiquated buildings in the NBA today. People don't even like, uh, the, the teams don't even like going to that arena anymore. Remember how exciting it was when D-Backs Park was opened up? Man, that was, that was unbelievable. Eh. I'd rather go to Fenway or Wrigley Field any day. Does anybody remember Metro Center? <laughs> I was, I was a, a, a high school sophomore when that opened. Holy cow. This is the Taj Mahal, man. You've been out there lately? This beautiful building of ours right here. 
Someday it's going to come down. Ultimately, Jesus is what we need and want, and he always outlasts anything that you and I can build. That's the message of Haggai. And by the way, we don't need to pray about that. Do you know Jesus? Let me pray, and we'll have our time of reflection. God, we thank you for your word and its truth, and we thank you for the message of Haggai and how encouraging it can be, but also how it can cut us to the quick. It can cut to our bone about so many of the fallacies that we live by. So God, I pray that we would have the wisdom to, to really do self-assessment, to analyze where we think that we have the answers, and really the answer is simply in you and what you've called us to. God, by the power of the filling of your Holy Spirit, I pray that you would, uh, you would just, I don't know, pull that out of us and help us to understand that, and then give us the power to live by that. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.